to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Now, we all have a bit of a rebel in us, don't we? We have a part of us that pushes back that resists doing what we're told to do, that revolts against someone else's commands and expectations for us, right? Viva la resistance. Now, I've had a moment of resistance about a week ago. Megan and I were traveling for the holidays, and we wanted to go to Denver to spend some time with my family. Now, the day we flew out was a pretty long day. Even getting, even just the idea of getting on the plane was stressful because we were flying Southwest, who had been canceling like two-thirds of their flights every day for like the week leading up to our flight. So I was monitoring our flight up to the minute, just praying that we were going to make it. Now, thankfully, our flight wasn't canceled, but obviously that adds a bit of stress to the whole process. And this is a process that already has plenty of stress about. And on top of that, This was also going to be our very first time ever flying with a baby. Now, ultimately, Joe did great. He seemed to enjoy the process. He was great. He was adorable. But even then, we're still trying to manage and wrestle a wiggly baby with surprising strength in these, like, tight quarters of a plane seat for, like, two hours. Then we got into Denver. And In Denver, my uncle was supposed to be waiting there for us to give us a ride to my parents, since my parents were still not back yet from spending Christmas in Illinois with my sister and her family. And while my uncle, he was there on time to pick us up, the car seat that we were borrowing from my cousin was not there. He had forgotten it. And now that meant we couldn't safely put Joe in the car. And that meant instead of my uncle just driving all of us from the airport to my parents' house, he instead had to drive just me from the airport to his house to pick up the car seat and then back to my parents where I could then take their second car with the car seat back to the airport to get Megan and Joe. Now, that arrangement still made the most sense because as we were on the drive to his house, my uncle was telling me about the health problems that he'd been having again lately. He'd been having heart issues and I've been causing breathing issues and anxiety. My uncle, who I, I mean, 90% of the reason we wanted to go now was because he needed to make sure Joe got the chance to meet his aunt and uncle while they were still with us. And now I'm hearing about health issues that he is having just then. He had, he was, in the ER on Christmas Day, and even the morning of our flight, he wasn't sure he was going to feel up to coming to pick us up. So at that point, I figured we should my uncle drive any more than he needs to. And all this time, Megan's still just at the airport with a baby, waiting for us to get back. So now, here I am, I'm finally on my way back to the airport. I'm driving my parents' car through snow and I coordinate with Megan, I pull up to the curb, and I can see her through the window getting stuff together while also managing a baby so that she can come right up to the car and get loaded in. All of this takes a minute. But in that minute, a guy in a bright yellow coat, the if he's even that, I don't know what position and authority he actually has, but this guy comes up to me and he starts yelling. This, this area is for active loading only. If I'm not actively loading somebody into my car at that moment, then I need to go. I need to move on, apparently. Now, never mind that the way Denver Airport is set up, it's going to take like 20 minutes if, to just loop back around and get back to the terminal. 
Never mind that my wife is not going to be standing out waiting in the cold and dark with our six-month-old baby. <laughs> Never mind that there were no cars, no cars that I was blocking just by waiting there for a minute. There wasn't a lot of cars. There was nothing. <laughs> it, none of that mattered. I needed to get moving. And you know, at that point, I was done. It had been a long day. I was tired, I was stressed, and it was my birthday. <laughs> yeah. So no, I was not listening to what this guy was going to me to do. So I yelled right back at him. She's waiting inside. She has a baby. She's coming right out. Man. And he didn't care. He kept yelling at me to move my car. But I was not about to leave Megan and Joe to wait for like another 20 minutes just so I could obey whatever authority this guy had. You know, again, viva la resistance. And a minute later, I'm still yelling back at this guy and Megan and Joe come right out. They get right in the car and we're off and I'm celebrating my minor victory. Now, isn't that a little satisfying? Doesn't that stoke like a little bit, just a bit of a rebellious spirit in all of us? You know, the injustice of it all. I think we like stories of injustice a little bit. You know, we like to hear about someone standing up to a boss or telling off an unfair professor. Um, we, we rebel in our own ways. You know, I mean, if the speed limit's 40, we go 43. When someone puts out a bowl of candy and a sign that says, please take one, we take two. Now, some of us, I know some of us are good rule followers. But in general, do we like to follow authority? Or do we want that freedom that comes from being able to just do what we think is best? After all, this is America. This is the land of the free. No one can tell us what to do. In our music, in our movies, across our social media, we are encouraged to resist the man, do what we think is right, and just follow our heart. But here we are in church trying to follow God faithfully while we live in this world. Here we talk about commandments and obedience, while the world speaks about resistance and the heart. Our culture says we should have the freedom to do whatever we want. And Paul writes that Christ has truly set us free. But then also Jesus tells us that if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. That doesn't sound like freedom. So what's the deal? Can we follow our heart? and follow Christ? Can we resist authority and submit to God? How do we live well in a world? How, how do we live well in a world as Jesus followers amidst this tension? What is it that leads to true freedom? That's what we're going to explore over the next few weeks in our series, this uh, series called The Slavery of Freedom. Now I know slavery of freedom sounds like an oxymoron, but stick with me and come back each week of this series as we explore how freedom from authority and restraint does not lead to flourishing, but instead can lead into a bondage of its own as we become slaves to our strongest desires and addictions. Now this is part two of our year-long study of Pastor John Mark Comer's Live No Lies, which we started in the fall with our series Talking Back to the Devil. In that series, we started to consider a sort of working theory derived from the Apostle Paul's writings about the dangers that we find ourselves facing as Christians and of the nature of the spiritual warfare that we are fighting. Now, we can read this warning from Paul in Ephesians 2. 
Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live in that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. From that, we get our working theory. As followers of Jesus, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the three enemies' stratagem is as follows. Is as follows. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Now, so far we have looked at the devil who used deceptive ideas and lies to confuse our ideas of reality and our mental maps. We considered how the devil is real, as Jesus tells, that it tells us that he is real, and that he's a real danger and real threat that we should take seriously. And we started to confront the lies that we have bought into, and, and what Jesus and Scripture tells us is true instead. Now, I encourage you to go back to that series and listen to it again, either on the Damascus Road Tucson YouTube page or the Damascus Road Tucson podcast. Now, later in the spring, in our series World on Fire, we'll consider how the world, that is the culture of America, of campus, or Tucson, or as Brad defined it, the prevailing wisdom of our day, how that all normalizes and reinforces the deceptive ideas of the devil. But for now... In this series, we're going to be looking at the flesh and our disordered desires. And you may be wondering, what does my body have to do with it? What is wrong with desire? And then going back to where we started, what does this have to do with authority and freedom? Now, first, first question there, what's the deal with flesh? When we open up our Bible, depending on the translation, we find Paul warning us about the dangers of our flesh. For example, here in the ESV translation of Romans 7, we can read, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Then in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, does this mean that we are worried about our physical bodies? Well, no, not really. The Greek word that Paul is using that often is translated as flesh is sarx. Um, Now, just like a lot of English and other ancient Greek words, sarx can mean a few different things. Now, just consider uh, for this exercise Paul's two letters to the church in Corinth. In those two letters, Paul uses sarx 22 times in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And we can see that sarx can mean our functional physical bodies, just as it does in 2 Corinthians 4.11, when Paul describes Jesus as possessing a mortal body or sarks like us. Now, it can also refer to a people group with shared racial, cultural, or national identity and history, as in 1 Corinthians 10.18, when Paul uses sarks to refer to the people of Israel. Finally, and this is what's most important for our understanding of flesh today, It can be used to describe our human nature or our human standards, especially our limitedness and the weakness of our human nature, which sets us apart from God. It's our humanness in its sin, corruption, and brokenness. When Paul writes about the thorn in his flesh, we can understand that Paul does not have a splinter, but instead uh, that a weakness in his human nature or a struggle with a particular sin is what he's writing about. 
depending on our translation, we might read flesh in all of these different cases. But it is important to understand that while Paul uses the same word in all of these different contexts, even just in these two different letters to the same church, it does not always carry the same meaning or the same negative connotation in all of these instances. Think of like how a bug might feel fear as I threaten to squash it. But my son Joe will feel instead excitement as I offer him squash, one of his favorite foods. <laughs> different things, different connotations. Now, when we read or talk about the flesh for this third meaning, we need to understand Paul is not using flesh literally, but is using an old idiom to refer to the broken state of our humanity as we struggle with sin. He does not mean that nothing good dwells in our literal physical bodies, but that in our humanity and in our brokenness, we are in danger of sin. Jesus took on flesh. He became human. He had a body, and it was good. If the material of the human body was intrinsically evil, how could our perfect, perfectly good and loving God become human? How could he take on a body of his own? Certainly, our bodies are marred by sin and sickness and are not perfect. But if God declared the material of our bodies to be good, we cannot declare it to be evil. Rather, we need to understand that when Paul uses this third meaning of flesh, he is warning us about a particular vulnerability and danger that we face in our broken human state. John Mark Comer describes this flesh as the sinful appetite in all of us that feels natural to our bodies and yet is wrong. Eugene Peterson describes it as the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. This is our sinful nature and the sinful desires in us. And these go back to Genesis 3, when Eve looked at the forbidden fruit through the eyes of the serpent and desired it. When Brad introduced us to our working theory last fall, he described the danger of the flesh is that not every desire we feel is good and right. In fact, Paul is specifically saying here that we have within us desires that are in conflict. And those, there are those given to us by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. God, and those of the sinful nature or the flesh. This claim that we can have bad desires is pretty countercultural in our day and age. Now the world tells us to always, always, always follow our heart. There are no bad desires. Rather, the key to happiness is to pursue and satisfy every desire we might have, no matter what anyone else, be it a parent, a friend, a teacher, a pastor, or the Bible has to say about it. The heart wants what the heart wants. Or translation, the reason you're unhappy is because other people are telling you you can't do stuff, as, as uh, restated by John Mark Comer. Now, this idea is so prevalent in our present culture, and we constantly hear the message that we must follow our hearts in order to arrive at a happy, flourishing life. And if it's in our heart, well, then it's a good and authentic desire. But Pastor Jonathan Grant describes this present cultural moment like this. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel that we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that's imposed on us from the outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. 
The reality of our modern age is that the self, not God nor Scripture, is the locus of authority. But if we have conflicting desires, then how does this work? If we're to be true to ourselves, which self? If we're to follow our hearts, which heart do we follow? Am I true to the self that wants to own a house in my friend's neighborhood one day, or the self that wants to spend that money now on a new Xbox and a bigger TV? Do I follow my heart and pursue lifelong intimacy and commitment with my wife, or do I follow the heart that likes the attention that I get from the cute younger coworker? Okay, bad example. My wife is my cute younger coworker. <laughs> and then just last week, just last week, I followed my desire for another basket of French fries at Red Robin, which later cost me my desire to carry my son up the stairs without losing my breath. And the truth is, not all desires are created equal, or at least not all are equally beneficial. Some lead to life and freedom and peace. Others lead to death and slavery and fear. And further complicating that is that our deepest desires are not always our strongest desires, like the desire to save up or spend now, the desire to feel better later, or enjoy more of those garlic fries with campfire sauce now. And this is because our flesh, aka the corruption of our human nature due to sin. As a result, we have conflicting desires. And we are in danger of those desires getting out of whack as our strongest desires overtake us and force us to sacrifice our deeper desires. Consider our desire for sex. That is a good, God-given desire. But it can also go wrong and hijack our desires for intimacy, connection, and relationship. I remember one night as a freshman in college, my roommate and I were going to see a movie and we gave a ride to another one of his friends. On the way, as they caught up with each other, she, she shared a deeply sad and heartbreaking story. She and a close friend of hers recently had had sex together. But instead of developing and cultivating a deeper and more intimate relationship with him, the experience left her feeling hurt, regretful, and alone. And this isn't me projecting or me judging this young woman's decision. This is what she shared herself with remarkable honesty and vulnerability. Well, then later on, after we saw the movie, which had quite a bit of satirical, a satirical take on religion, we were discussing it on the ride back to campus. And she asked aloud, why would I want to believe in a God who cares who I have sex with? Sitting in the back of the car, I couldn't help but consider that story she had shared earlier with heartbreak and sadness when that physical desire for pleasure superseded a deeper desire for intimacy and friendship. Maybe God cares because he didn't want her to hurt. Comer says this about this common disordered desire of sex. When sex becomes a pseudo-God that we look to for identity, for belonging in a community, or for life satisfaction, when it becomes a soteriology, that is a doctrine of salvation, as it is for so many in the West, then that's a disordered love. And it's not, that it, it's not just that it's wrong in a moral sense, it's that it can't possibly satisfy the deeper ache of the soul for love, intimacy, acceptance, and generativity. After all, the body just wants an orgasm, but the soul wants more, communion and contribution. Then consider, as another example, consider our desire for meaning and significance. We want to know our lives mean something, that they matter. 
And culture tells us that our meaning is drawn from our identity. It from, comes from how we understand who we are, and, and, present, and culture presents us with so many ways that we can understand and answer that question. And how we understand ourselves is complex and multifaceted, and it's important. It does matter. It's important to understand who God made me to be because that shapes me and it informs me. It impacts how I move through the world and how I understand the Bible. For example, my ethnic identity is complex, and it's been something that I have been working to understand. My family is Japanese, and my grandmother, my great-grandmother, aunts and uncles, they were all imprisoned by the U.S. government in World War II for being Japanese. And that shapes how I view America as a fallible and human institution, and it helps me to identify with the oppressed and marginalized, which is often the context that the Bible is speaking directly to. At the same time, I'm also white passing, which means that I've not really directly experienced any sort of oppression and marginalization for my ethnic identity. When I read passages about God's justice, I should recognize that I'm reading from a place of privilege, not personal suffering. That said, all the different elements of our identity, our ethnic, racial, familial, sexual, gender, political, professional, religious, socioeconomic, etc. All of those are merely facets of our whole identity. No single one can hold the weight of our whole meaning and significance. Yet the pressure to make any one of these our ultimate identity is very real and strong in our cultural, current cultural moment. And they just can't stand up for that. Just this summer, I took on a new identity. I love my son, and I have always, always wanted to be a father. I also had 31 years where I had to find meaning and significance elsewhere. I had to find meaning in singleness. I had to find significance in my marriage without children. And even now, I still need to find my identity apart from Joe, or else I will demand that he bear a weight no person can bear. Consider if you have ever felt that your parents, all of their meaning and significance depended on you, or if you have a friend who has that sort of relationship with their parents. Does that lead to flourishing of either parent or child? All of our identities must be subjected to the one identity that can, our identity as children of God. But then that takes our identity from ourselves what does our heart say? And that gives it to God. Now, despite what the world says, if we do want to pursue a happy and flourishing life, we don't need to pursue and satisfy all of our desires. Instead, we need to curb our desires and we need to seek joy and contentment apart from them. Because the truth is that giving into the desires of our flesh does not lead to freedom and life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery and in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. We become slaves to the stronger desires of our flesh as we succumb to them, and we lose out on the deeper desires for loving and flourishing relationships with God and others. Paul tells us what actually leads to true freedom in Galatians 5. Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up in a slavery to the law. Paul goes on to explain that we are free from needing the law to make us right. That is, we are no longer are bound to strive for obedience in order to be in right relationship with God. 
Instead, we are only made right by Jesus. The law is still needed, but we don't follow it because we have any sense of obligation that we can become righteous by following it perfect, following it perfectly. The law does not make us right with God, but by being right with God, which only happens through Jesus' grace and salvation, and out of that we follow the law. But then what does this mean? Does this mean we're free? If we're we're free from the law and we don't have to follow perfectly, does that mean that we're now free to pursue every whim, every desire we might have? No. Paul goes on. For if you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers, for you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love, For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Paul teaches us that we can use, that we need to use our freedom to still follow God's law, to still subject ourselves to God's law, which he summarizes as the command to love others and to serve them. That should be our ultimate desire our desire for God. Now, not all of our desires love others. Not all of our desires even love ourselves. Many are destructive and come with great consequences, not freedom. And these harmful desires then need to be subjected to this desire. They need to be subjected to God's authority because only then can we experience true freedom. St. Augustine, one of the most important figures in Christian history who lived in the 4th and 5th century, taught that we were created in love and for love. But the problem is either that we love the wrong things or that we love the right things in the wrong order. The solution to this problem and the cause for human flourishing is to say yes to God's authority rather than rebel against it in order to sort out and to discipline our desires. So am I saying to have true freedom we need God's authority and discipline? Yes. In our flesh, we are broken and vulnerable to sinful appetites and instincts. In the disordered desires of our flesh, we need to accept God's authority, not resist it. And we need to allow God to discipline our desires as described in Hebrews 12. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the, Lord's, for the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. God disciplines us as a parent, and we should be encouraged by that. Yet when you look back at the discipline that we receive as children from our parents, I think we view that authority and discipline primarily as rules and punishment for breaking those rules. That doesn't feel very encouraging, but discipline done and understood properly is more than that. Before Joe was born, I prepared by reading a number of books about parenting children and matters of discipline. One of the best books I read was Habits of the Household by Justin Whitmell Early, and that is all about how to pursue spiritual formation as a family. And he helps us to understand how integral God's discipline is to our discipleship. The loving discipline of the Heavenly Father is what creates disciples who in turn love others like he loved us. You do not need a degree in linguistics to see the root connection between discipline and discipleship. God's discipline is the process that creates God's disciples. Disciples sit at the feet of their teacher. 
learning from him, trusting him and his authority. Disciples submit their desires to him. And Jesus makes an offer of what life can look like for those that follow him as his disciples. Are you worn out? Are you tired? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Rest, recovery, unforced rhythms of grace. Life lived freely and lightly. Don't you? I know I do. Now, as we consider how the freedom to follow all of the desires of our flesh leads us into slavery to those desires, not to true freedom and flourishing, I want to invite you to reflect and consider, what are my deepest desires? What are the deepest longings that God has placed on your heart? Is it love? Is it community, intimacy, and relationship? Then consider, what are my strongest desires? What are the desires that you find yourself struggling to resist, whether or not you think they're good or bad for you? And we also need to consider which of my desires are from God and which are from the flesh. Because not all of our desires are good for us or for others. Or some desires are good, but they should not be our ultimate desires. We can tell the difference by what leads to love for God, for others, and ourselves. What can lead to lasting, flourishing, and freedom, not just immediate satisfaction. And as we sort through our disordered desires, we are called to trust in God's authority as God disciplines us as a loving parent. To answer this question, we need to know God and to allow God to have authority over our lives. We are called to submit our loves and longings and desires to God. Now, this is very hard to sort through alone, so I invite you to come to Catalyst this weekend if you're still on the fence about it. We will continue to sort through all of this, and we will seek out God's discipline and formation in our lives. It's not too late to register, and I promise you that it is worth your time to take the time to drive out to the desert with us and spend this weekend with God. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to explore our flesh and the way our disordered desires impact us. This is bigger than resistance against authority, but a war. Again, our working theory, as followers, we are at war with the world, with the flesh, and with the devil. And these three enemies' stratagem is as follows. Deceptive ideas that come from the devil, that play to disordered desires of our flesh, that are normalized by a sinful, desi- sinful society that is the world. And what is key to this is that we are not alone. We have a loving Father who wants us to have a flourishing life, who speaks truth, not lies, and who challenges what the culture tells us is normal and acceptable. We have a God who took on human flesh so that we can know him and be known by him, and he calls us in to freedom. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray 
for us this morning, Lord, that we can be open to you, Lord. That we can sort through our desires, Lord. That we can recognize the good desires that you've given us, Lord. The hurtful and harmful desires, Lord, that come out of our sinful state that we are vulnerable to, Lord. Help us to subject those desires to you, Lord, to sort through, let you sort through those desires, to guide us, to have you give you authority in our lives, to disciple ourselves to you, Lord, in your discipline. Help us to sort through what is good but not ultimate, what is harmful and leads only into slavery, Lord, and to turn to you and let our ultimate desire be for you, Lord, for peace and love and oneness with you, Lord, and one another. And in all this, Lord, I give it up to you. In your holy name I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.